Kids can be dismissed to Sunday school if they haven't already left. Amen. Well, we have a lot of things to, um, to pray about. Our nation needs prayer, our province, our city. And uh, now we have a new political party in our province, a new leader, uh, whatever your persuasion might be. Um, but uh, we need to pray for every level of government, all those in authority over us, as the scripture says. And so I encourage you to keep doing that. Um, I know you are, and so it's just an important thing for us to do. Romans chapter 10 is where we are today. And as we mentioned last week, um, Romans chapter 9, verse chapter 10, chapter 11 is all on Israel. What's the place of Israel in the world today? Um, from chapter 12 through the end of the book is a very practical section with things on spiritual gifts, dealing with questionable issues, the weak and the strong, submission to authority, and a number of other interesting things that we'll be talking about as time permits. Romans chapter 9, as we talked about last week, is about Israel's past. Romans chapter 10 today is about Israel's present. And next week we'll hear about Romans chapter 11, which includes something about Israel's future. And uh, so we talked last week about God's selection, God's sovereignty, how God chose the children of Israel to be his chosen people. And we talked about those eight privileges that the Jews had. And if you missed that, you can go to our website and listen to last week's message. But today in chapter 10, we want to talk about Israel's present. How many have ever had the opportunity to visit Israel? Anybody? Oh, a few of us. If you had a chance, would you go? How many would go? See me after, let's sign up for a tour. Um, it's a, when, when I went years ago on a familiarization tour, which was part, partially subsidized by the Israeli government, tourism, um, and it was at the height of, uh, one of the heights of all the stuff going on, and it was interesting to see these 16, 17-year-old young men and women carrying these M16s. And, um, but when we were there, and all the way going there, through their security and everything else, they, were, really, they really are a step above everybody else as far as feeling secure. I think I felt more secure in Israel than I do here. Um, it's just uh, quite an atmosphere and everything else, but you ever get a chance to go, it's, it's a great thing to go, a great place to go, and to experience it for yourself. But the Bible says God has temporarily set aside the Jewish nation. And in the Bible, they're the main story. Check the Old Testament. They are the main story. But now the church is the main story when you come to the New Testament. You hear about the church all the time, not about the nation of Israel. The Bible says in Romans 10 why God has set Israel aside. It deals with God's fairness in dealing with all people. It also happens to be one of the greatest missionary passages in all the Bible, Romans chapter 10. In this chapter, I want us to look at what Paul has to say about why has God set aside Israel. Then I want us to look at, okay, who then can be saved? And then the good news is, it's for everybody. Notice in verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since then they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is nigh you, near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Father, we're grateful for your word today, and as we 
read it and examine it. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and our guide and our helper. Not only that we might understand what the word declares, but how it might apply to each of our lives. So we ask for your help. We ask for your help in delivery. We ask for your help in receptivity. And we ask for your help in walking it out in life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's heartbroken. In chapter 9, remember, he, he said he'd be willing to go to hell. He'd be willing to give it up in order that the nation of Israel, his people, would come to understand who the Messiah was. That's an incredible admission, incredible passion for his people. Paul's a Jewish person himself, and his heart is breaking as his deepest desire to see this nation return to God and to be saved, and it implies that they've lost that special position. So Paul goes on to give us approximately, maybe more, but four reasons why God has set Israel aside. Firstly, God has set them aside because they didn't listen to what God told them. He said in the second verse, For I can testify about them, they're zealous about God, and their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, we know what that's like. As, as young, when, well, been a while since I was a young person, but um, something never seems to change. Your brain always thinks you're younger than your body responds to. How many know that's true? I mean, my brain wants to do things and my body tells me I'm not going to do it. But when you're young, there's, there's a lot of zealousness, a lot of enthusiasm, and not always a lot of knowledge. You know, we, we uh, but it's not always a bad thing, because when we're young, you, you are, maybe you're a greater uh, risk taker without knowing, whatever, and so you can accomplish a lot. It doesn't mean you don't take risk when you're older, but sometimes our understanding and our experience and our knowledge really is a bit of a hindrance. But when we're younger, our zealousness can be a bit of a hindrance. Without the knowledge of what uh, we want to do and accomplish and how it all, the ramifications of it. But the nation of Israel were very, very zealous. Throughout the Old Testament, God explained to the Jews exactly the process and the sacrifices and how they were to go about them. And he explained why he was preserving them and you might say saving them. And yet they refused to listen and they go off on their own way many times. Now, none of us have ever gone off on our own way, right? We've always been totally obedient and submissive to God. Isn't that an exciting way to live? Well, sometimes we do our own thing and get off track, whatever, but um, they refuse to listen. Notice the phrase in the second verse. He says, they are zealous for God. I mean, there's no group in the entire world that is more religiously zealous than the Jews. All through the Bible, they were zealous for God. In many religions, religion is a part of life. But for the Jew, their whole life revolves around their religion. It consumes them. It's the centerpiece of their life. They were zealous for the law. Now, Paul himself is an example of this. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reason for such confidence... If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul said, before I became a believer, I was extremely religious. I was zealous. Even to the point that I persecuted every other religion. He was zealous for God. He understands what the Jewish people are like. Here in Romans chapter 10, zealous for the law. It's even true today. There's nothing more zealous than a Hasidic Jew. Their whole life is consumed. They're nitpicking at the point that I heard of a hotel in Israel on the Sabbath day. They had a special elevator that stopped on every floor so you wouldn't have to push the button because pushing a button would be considered working on the Sabbath. Now they couldn't walk distance, whatever. A religion can't save you no matter how zealous you are. Only a relationship to God. Paul says they're zealous, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Kind of describes a lot of cults and religions today. A lot of 
different religions, and we know who they are, are zealous without knowledge, whether it be the J-dubs or the Mormons. Paul says they're zealous, but they don't know the truth. Have you ever heard anyone say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere? Well, sincerity is not enough. You can be zealous without knowledge and be sincerely wrong. You can get a bunch of people to believe that the world is flat, but you're sincerely wrong. Paul says God set them aside, and they're very sincere how they've missed the boat, and they don't listen to what God has said. Secondly, they tried to save themselves by good works. Verse 3 and 4, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Notice it says, they didn't know God's righteousness that comes by faith, so they sought to establish their own. A lot of people make the same mistake today. They're trying to set up their own religion. There's salvation by subtraction. Give up all your bad habits, and then you'll be a Christian. If I stop doing all the things that are fun, then maybe I'm going to be okay. There's salvation by service. Work hard, give money, volunteer, join the United Way. That'll get you into heaven. A lot of people think if their good works outweigh their bad, then God's going to grade on the curve and they'll make it. That's what Paul's saying here. They're trying to establish their own standards so they can appear righteous. I mean, do people today establish their own standards so they can look good? That's the spirit of our age. If it feels good, do it. Do your own thing. Many people try to set their own standards. Everybody's doing it, so therefore it must be okay. The Old Testament tells us that every man did that which is right in those eyes. And you know, it's, it's come around again in our society now. It feels good, do it. If, if, you think it's, if, if you think it's okay, it's okay. Verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law. The word end is the same word James uses for maturity. It means goal, completion, and maturity. It means fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Wherein we don't need the law in its legalistic sense anymore. All of it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now what is the law? The word law is used three different ways in scripture. Sometimes it refers to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it refers to the first five books of the Bible. Pentateuch, Torah. Sometimes it refers to the entire Old Testament. He's saying that Christ is the fulfillment of all those laws. And these people are trying to save themselves by good works, and we can't do it. Of course we should do good works. Scripture tells us that, you know, uh, our works should follow us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's not the works that get us there. And the Jews were trying to do that, and so they were put aside. The third reason God set them aside is in verse 5 to verse 7. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. And Paul is quoting both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, a couple of Old Testament books by Moses. When he says in verse 5, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will ascend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? Confusing verse if you're not a Jew. But any Jew would have understood what Paul meant. He's simply quoting the Old Testament. He's applying it to Christ. He took a couple of Old Testament scriptures and applies them to Christ. He's simply saying that salvation is already available. You don't have to run up to heaven to get it. Christ has already come. You don't have to raise Christ from the dead because it's already happened. He's simply saying that everything you need to be saved is already available. Aren't you thankful? Everything you need is available. There's no no add to. There's no and this and that. No. Everything is available through Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. In Greek, this is one word. It's a legal term. That is often stamped on documents which meant paid in full. You'd stamp it on a prison sentence that had been commuted. You'd stamp it on a bill that had been paid off. When Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, he literally said, I paid it all. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. It's paid. And that's the difference between Christianity and every other faith. 
every other faith is based on the word do. Do this, do that, do this, and you'll get to heaven. Christianity is based on done. It's been done, finished, you just accept it. You just believe that Jesus Christ has done it on the cross and in the empty tomb, and he's now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I, and he's saying, come. All you that are weary, come. Everyone come. Now, what's the purpose of the law? Paul said, in Galatians 3, 4, my brothers, we missed the purpose of the law. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified. Hmm. You set up a law and people automatically want to break it. Like, don't touch the wet paint. It's like asking people to touch it. Don't walk on the grass. And you, you make a law and people just want to break it. I don't know why that is. Don't touch the hot stove. The law just shows us how far we fall short. It never saved anybody. It shows us we need a Savior. It points us to Christ. Paul says, the Jews have missed the purpose of the law. Romans 10 verse 8 says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That's the word of faith that we're proclaiming. Paul is saying that salvation is available. So close as your heart, as close as your mouth. It's as close as believing in your heart and saying it with your mouth. It's available. Notice verse 16 to verse 19. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. The fourth reason why God has temporarily set the Jews aside is they rejected the good news about Christ. They rejected the good news about Christ. Scripture says that God has set the Jews aside for a point in time, but they're going to be brought back in. And you'll see that in the next chapter. God's faithfulness to his people. But here they rejected the good news, and Paul asked two questions and then answers them. He says, didn't Israel hear? Of course Israel heard. They knew about the Messiah. They still know about the Messiah. They heard the good news, they just didn't accept it. I mean, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, Israel. He walked in the nation of Israel. John chapter 1 verse 6 says, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came to his own people. Some of them received him. Paul, who's writing this as a Jew, all the disciples were Jews. Everybody in the New Testament church was Jewish. It wasn't until the gospel began to spread that some of the rest of us got in on the bandwagon. Romans 10, Paul says, didn't they hear? And then he answers, of course they heard. Their voice has gone out all over. He says, In verse 19, didn't they understand? He quotes Moses and says, yes, of course they understood. They even got jealous when they saw the Gentiles coming to God. These four reasons that God has temporarily set aside the Jewish nation. They didn't listen to what God said to them. They tried to save themselves by good works. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. And they rejected the good news about Christ. So the question then comes up, who then can be saved? God's own people, the chosen people, are missing the boat. Who can be saved? And Paul answers this in verse 9. And here we're going to see the possibility of salvation, the availability of salvation, and the responsibility of salvation. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe, right? And are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. 
As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. One of the clearest passages in scripture is that ninth verse. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with the heart that you believe and are justified, it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Last week we talked about God's part in salvation, the sovereignty of God. This week we're talking about our part, our responsibility. God put these chapters right next to each other to show the balance. And the Bible teaches both. We see the possibility of salvation where it says, if you confess with your mouth. If. If. Two conditions Paul lists. If you confess with your mouth. But we sure do like to add to them. For some churches it's believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and don't wear makeup. That is a law here, isn't it? No. It used to be. I remember when I was growing up, there was a number of, some were written, some were unwritten. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and don't go to the pool hall. Um, or don't go bowling. In fact, early on it was, and don't have drums in church. It wasn't written. It was just, I remember the first Sunday we had drums after the youth had had drums for a while. It's interesting how youth sometimes lead the way. Not always the right way, by the way, but they lead the way. And they stretch us so that, you know, in sometimes in their stretching us, we have a compromised balance and, and we carry on. But I don't know, sometimes there's these unwritten things, right? Um, I, I'd, I'd list some others, but no, you, you know what I mean. No one says making people squirm here, but... It doesn't even say, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and promise to never sin again. It doesn't say that. Aren't you glad it doesn't say that? Both of these are important. Confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart. To confess without believing is not enough. A lot of people say, sure, I'm a Christian. I believe in God and Jesus. There's a lot of famous people who profess to be Christians. They're half of it, right? But they don't believe in their heart. To confess without believing is not enough. Titus said they claim to know God, but by their action they deny him. Some people claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. The word believe in the Greek means to trust in, to cling to, to rely on, to commit to. I mean, the Bible says even the, even the demons believe in, they have the sense to tremble. But you're not going to find him in, but you're not going to find the enemy in heaven. He hasn't committed himself to Christ. A lot of people have a head knowledge About God, but not a heart knowledge. They're going to miss heaven by 18 inches. It's a head knowledge. They claim to know God, but by their action they deny him. It means to commit yourself. Commitment is the difference. Friends, even in church, commitment is the difference. You can attend here till Jesus comes. And never be committed. Never be committed to utilizing your gifts and abilities or talents. Never being committed to share your faith with somebody else. Never being committed to encourage them. Never being committed to pray for them. Never being committed. We can go to church and, and call ourselves Christians and call ourselves whatever. But unless we're committed to Jesus Christ, we believe and rely on, we trust in him totally. Commitment is the difference. And by commitment, I'm not saying works even though the part of our life when we endeavor to live out our faith but is not establishing our faith by works what do you believe that he died on the cross 
doesn't say that. It says you believe that Christ, that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is a central issue in Christianity and our faith. That's the most important thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if, they were, if there were no resurrection, then everything we're doing is hogwash. Translated. Everything. How can you tell if a religion is true or false? There always must be some point of test where it can be tested. And the test issue for Christianity is this one issue, the resurrection. The resurrection. If the resurrection can be disproved, our faith is false. Everything we believe is based on the resurrection. A lot of people had died on the cross before Jesus. That was a common way of getting rid of criminals and people. But Christ not only died on the cross, he died for a specific purpose, and he rose again. Passover, Easter, what we celebrate. If you deny the resurrection, you're not a believer. End of story. It's important that you not just confess, but that you believe in your heart. On the other hand, to believe without confessing is not enough. But to believe without letting others know is not enough either. There are no secret agent disciples. No secret agents. We're to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. You hear a lot of people talking, Jesus is my Savior. But the word Savior is only used six or eight times in the New Testament. And it's true, he he did save us. But the word Lord is used around 640 times. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Lord is used over 6,000 times. It's the single most used word for God. It says Jesus is God. Jesus was not just a man. He was not just a good man. He was either who he said he was or he was a fake, a liar, and a lunatic. Nobody would be a good person and say the things Jesus said unless he were telling the truth. If he told the truth, he was God. He claimed to be God. He never claimed to be a good teacher, but he did claim to be God. And God, I believe, expects us to verbalize our faith. Sometimes people are what somebody has once called, they are Arctic River Christians. They're frozen at the mouth. Arctic River frozen. They're afraid to talk. They're afraid to confess anything. And that's one of the important elements about water baptism. Baptism is a public confession of your faith. Next Sunday, if you haven't been baptized in water, it is a public confession of your faith. It's saying to the world, I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm a believer in Jesus and I'm obeying his word to be baptized. So if you have not been baptized, hurry and sign up. Talk to Pastor Roger. We've got a class next Sunday morning at 9.30. Um, Brother David Pillar was teaching this morning at 9.30. And there's a few more next Sunday morning at 9.30. And, um, and then we're going to have the baptism tank warm. It's, our baptismal tank is special. It's like a jacuzzi. The water circulates. Warm. Almost like being in Israel. Not salty or anything like that, but it's, it's nice. It's the most comfortable tank in the city to express your faith. We couldn't make it any easier. It's awesome. If you have not been baptized in water, it is a way to publicly declare your faith. Baptism is like the wedding ring of the Christian faith. Years ago, never mind how many, in fact, it'll be 45 in August. 45 years ago, I said two words that changed my life permanently and continue to change my life. When I said, I do. Now, friends, in all honesty, I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Did any of you? I had no idea. Idea. 
Oh, I had some thoughts, but no idea. But I said that in my heart. How did anybody else know? It changed my life when I said those words. But the day when I was seven years of age at the front row of Castlegar Pentecostal Church, I think they changed it now to New Life, something or other. Um, we had a lady pastor, two lady pastors, actually. They were co-pastors. And um, seven years of age, I knelt at the front row and committed my life to Jesus Christ. Now, I had been a terrible sinner up till then. In all kinds of things. <laughs> How much can you get into at age of I was still mysterious. I'm mysterious. I was still mischievous after that. Now, I'm not mischievous anymore. I'm totally a saint, but... Um, <clears throat> If you believe that, I've got some property for you for sale in Florida. But anyway, um, it changed my life. Seven years of age at the front altar of the church. I didn't realize everything I was doing when I made that commitment. Other people didn't know at the time when I said I do to Jesus Christ. But I said it in my heart. And I meant it. Now, was my life a continual growth and faith from that point on? No, I had a few plateaus, a few dips. And um, in the whole process of understanding about the Christian faith, even though I was raised in church, I was raised in a Christian home, um, went to youth group, was on the youth executive, was there when we brought in the sinful drums. I mean, all those all those events. I remember when we took our youth group bowling and we had to meet with the deacons afterwards. We had a few hiccups as we expressed ourselves and stretched ourselves and whatever and learned some things and learned, you know, hopefully some things that created some maturity in our lives. But the one thing that stayed constant was I do to Jesus Christ. I remember being baptized in the lake at Kootenai Pentecostal Camp with a bunch of other friends. I remember the feeling of being baptized in water and how, how do you explain it unless you've been there? It was that outward reminder of my inward commitment, a public confession. When I got married, I was given a ring and I wear the ring as a reminder of my inward commitment. My baptism is an outward reminder, and it's a reminder to me constantly of a public confession of my faith in Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Now, who can be saved? Verse 11 says, as the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. Give your life to Christ, it'll not, and you, he will not let you down. You will not be disappointed in him. In things in life, yeah. In other people, yes. But you will not be disappointed in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Paul said there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. How many here are not Jews? You're Gentile. Aren't you glad the gospel came to Gentiles? It came to us. In Scripture, there's two kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews. We have so much to be thankful for from the Jewish people. We wouldn't have the Bible if it weren't for the fact that Jews meticulously copied Scripture year after year for thousands of years. The same Lord is Lord of all, richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The availability of salvation, who can be saved? Everybody. It is a universal offer. When God makes an offer, everybody gets in on it. Everybody's included. John 3.16, we all know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever. Somebody asked a little kid one time to define whosoever. He said, that's everybody in the whole world and me. That's everybody in the whole world and me. There's not anybody who can't be a believer. 
Do we get the progression of Paul's logic? First he talks about why the Jews have been temporarily set aside. Then he says, anybody can be saved right now. But what's the responsibility of salvation? After you become a believer, is there any responsibility after you're a Christian? You bet. The responsibility of every Christian is to share the message with somebody else. If you're a Christian, our responsibility is to share the message with somebody else. Pass it on. Remember, that's what the Jewish nation was supposed to do, and they didn't do it. And so then God set them aside, and now he's using the church. That's you and I. And we're to pass it on. These verses destroy the misconception that some people take when they take the doctrine of election, which is a legitimate doctrine, and they take it to an extreme, which says, if God knows everybody who's going to be saved, and he's already foreknown and chosen them in advance, then I don't need to tell anybody. If they're going to be saved, they're going to be saved. Why do we need to do anything about it? When William Carey, the first missionary, modern missionary, suggested that he go to Burma, one man said, if God wanted to save the heathen, he'll do it without you. That guy hadn't read Romans chapter 10. Verse 14 says, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe on the one they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? One of the great missionary texts in the Bible. Why do we have missionaries? To reach out. Why do we have evangelism? They're not going to be saved unless unless somebody tells them. Somebody has to tell them. There's five links in the chain, and he works it backwards. He says, you call on the name of the Lord to be saved. How can they call unless they believe? How can they believe unless they heard? How can they hear unless they've been preached to? How can they be preached to unless somebody sent somebody out to talk to them? The word preach is not the word for preach in other passages. He's not talking about a professional clergyman here. He's not talking about a preacher or a pastor or an evangelist. It's a participle in the Greek. The emphasis is on the message, not the messenger. Anybody that shares the good news with an unbeliever is a preacher, a proclaimer. Anytime you say a word about Christ to somebody else, friend, you are preaching. He's not talking about professional clergymen or women. The point he's making is that God uses people to reach people. All of us came to Christ because of somebody, one way or the other. Even if you read a book, somebody had to write the book. Even if you watch a TV program, someone had to produce the program. He says, how can they hear the preaching unless they're sent? Who's sent? fact is, friends, we are all sent. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're sent. You're sent into the world. The calling to be a Christian is the calling to be a witness to share with other people. We can't ignore our responsibility. My responsibility, the moment I became a believer, was to tell other people how they could become believers. If we don't tell, who will? Verse 15 says, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Normally, the feet are not the most attractive part of our body. Paul is talking about walking, sharing the good news. In the Great Commission, he says, go into all the world, make disciples. Literally, make disciples is a primary verb. It is as you go, make disciples. As you go. It's not like you have to intentionally go, but as you're going in the daily walk of life, tell people about Jesus Christ. It's not the few that are are sent to some foreign field. It's not the few that are sent down to the street. It's every disciple, as you go in life, make disciples. As you go. Matthew 24, 14. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Perhaps he hasn't come back yet because he's not through saving people. He's not through using you and I to share the message. The fact is, I, I forget, Ron looked it up the other day, how many billion people, there's well over probably three billion or more in the world, or, or more in the world, but there's about 2.8 billion that have never heard of Jesus Christ. They don't know the message of salvation. The question is, 
Does anybody have the right to hear the gospel twice before everybody's had the opportunity to hear it once? It's the most life-changing message. And there's people that you and I rub shoulders with every day. You'd be surprised. A number of years ago, we had a couple here come to church. And uh, they'd uh, lived in Canada a long time. And uh, he had never been inside a church door. And he was, at the time, probably in his late 30s. Many people have not heard and they have not seen the message lived out through person like yourself. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be. Every believer is called to be a witness. You don't have to explain it all, but just say, this is what happened to me. Friends, who's going to be in heaven because of you? Being a disciple maker needs to be a top priority of every believer. Some people might believe that the edification of Christians is more important than reaching unbelievers. The growth of Christians should be top priority of the church, yes. But that's faulty logic when you consider the fact that they wouldn't be any Christians if evangelism wasn't somebody's priority. The fact is you've got to win them before you can help them grow. And that's why we're encouraging us in 10.110. Within 10 kilometer radius of the church or where you live, we just bring one, just one, in a year. Just one. And disciple that one, whether it's in your home or where you work, or and disciple that one. And then those two in the next year bring one. And then those four in the next year bring one. In ten years, this church won't be able to hold all the people. Priority. Something I've noticed, the older a church gets, the more self-centered and ingrown it tends to become. We get more concerned about what I want, what we want. Luke 15, verse 3. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them and does not leave does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. When he finds it, he puts it on his shoulder and calls his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Wow. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one person that repents than all of us and everything we did here this morning. Ouch! Not that we're not important. Not that it isn't important to bring glory to God. It is. Sometimes I've wondered why, why God doesn't take us to heaven the moment we become a believer. Why does he leave us here on earth? Two things you can't do in heaven. You can pray in heaven. You can sing, fellowship, probably even read the Bible. Two things you can't do. You can't sin and you can't witness. God didn't leave you here on the earth to sin. He left us here on the earth to tell others. A little story I read. And with this I'm going to close. For months, the Fisher's Society had been racked with dissension. They built the new meeting hall, which they called their aquarium. They'd even called a world-renowned fisherman's manual scholar to lecture to them on the art of fishing. But still, no fish were caught. Several times each week, they would gather in their ornate aquarium hall and read portions of the fisherman's manual and listen to their scholar tell interesting intricacies and mysteries of the manual. The meeting would usually end with the scholar dramatically casting his net into the tank in the center of the hall and the members rushing excitedly to the edges to see if any fish would bite. None ever did, of course, since there were no fish in the tank. 
which brings up the reason for the controversy. The temperature of the tank was carefully regulated just to be right for ocean perch. Indeed, oceanographer experts had been consulted to make the environment of the tank nearly indistinguishable from the ocean. But still, no fish. Some blamed it on the poor attendance of the society's meetings. Others were convinced that specialization was the answer. Perhaps several smaller tanks, especially for different fish age groups. There was even a division over which was more important, casting or providing optimum tank conditions. Eventually, a solution was reached. A few members of the society were commissioned to be professional fishermen and were sent to live a few blocks away on the edge of the sea and do nothing but catch fish. It was a lonely existence because most of the other members were terrified of the ocean. So the professionals would send back pictures of themselves holding up some of their catches and letters describing the joys and tribulations of real live fishing. And periodically they would return to the aquarium and show slides. After such meetings, people of the society would return to their homes thankful that the hall had not been built in vain. The quickest way to kill a church is to stop reaching out. Fastest way. We hear stats of how many churches are closing in North America every year. It is an astounding number. You can check, focus on the family. They got all the information. Paul says in verse 20 and verse 21, Isaiah said boldly, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. He's talking about Gentiles. Isaiah predicted, even in the Old Testament, even before Jesus came, that God's message would be spread to us. Meanwhile, the Jews were so zealously seeking, the Gentiles weren't even seeking, and God revealed himself to them. You know, God is revealing himself to Muslims all over the world. Visions, through different circumstances, situations. God is finding a way. And friend, there's people that we have rubbed souls in a long time. Maybe you've shared your faith, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've been petrified like so often we can be. We're afraid of the ocean just out there. We're comfortable in the tank. The good news to the Jew, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Even though the Jews were not accepting the Messiah, he was still loving and still being patient with them. He was holding out his hand to them. Friends, Aren't you glad that somebody told you about Christ? Aren't you glad? And the good news is that anybody can be saved if they'll believe in their heart, confess with their mouth. I know we can dissect it all down to all kinds of other definitions of that word and everything else, but the bottom line boils down to believing here, confessing here, and of course living and walking it out. Anybody can be saved. If you haven't done that this morning, why not do it now? Why not believe in your heart this morning that Jesus indeed died for you, for me, and everybody else in this room, and in the world. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth simple prayer. Jesus Christ, I want to believe in you. I want you to be my Lord. Forgive me. I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. And I want to accept you as the Lord of my life. Confess with your mouth. Share it with a friend, with somebody. Those who have, I know you're glad that somebody told you about Christ. Who are we sharing Christ with? I want to encourage you. Romans is the greatest passage in scripture. And here's the best evangelical section. Begin praying. Ask God who specifically you can share with. Begin to pray for them. God, give me a burden for somebody, a neighbor, a friend, a relative. Somebody I work with. 
And then set as a goal. Lord, help me to reach one person for you before this year ends. One person. I don't want it to be a barren year. I want to reach one person at least. Lord, I thank you for your good news. It's good news. Thank you that you're a fair God. You've made salvation available to all of us. Thank you it's based on grace, not race. Your mercy, not our merit. Lord, help us not to hoard the gospel, to keep it hidden, but to share it, to live it, to express it. To invite someone else to experience what we've experienced in Christ. Lord, I thank you for every person here. I thank you for those who know you. I thank you for those whose life mission is in whatever means, whatever way, that their life would be a testimony of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And Lord, for others who they've accepted you and there's a hesitancy, there's a nervousness, Lord, I pray you'll bring somebody you help us to see, you help us to experience the joy of just sharing how much you mean to us, how you've changed us, what you're doing in our life, prayers you've answered, strength you've given, resolve of sins forgiven that we can share with somebody else. For Lord, it really just boils down to one beggar sharing with another beggar where to find bread. And Jesus, you're the bread of life. So Lord, I pray you'll stir all of us within our hearts. Stir within us the priority of as we go, make disciples. As we live out our life to share Jesus through our actions, through our words, through our conduct, our character, our integrity, So, Lord, help us to prayerfully see the world with your eyes. And I pray, God, if any person here this morning would have prayed a prayer this morning and asking you to come in and believing in their heart that, Jesus, you died for them and you rose again, that they might indeed confess with their mouth to a family member, a friend, somebody, the decision they made. And follow through and say, yes, I want to be baptized in water and make a public declaration through baptism that I do with Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance on you, and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, amen.